In verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One known author said this, Truth is the greatest gift of life, and love is the exercise of that truth. Jeffrey Chaucer said this of truth, Truth is the highest thing that man can keep. And then John Dryden said, Truth is the foundation of all knowledge, and it is the cement of every society. A a society and an individual who abandons truth or does not know truth will fail. Today, we are in a very, very uh, degraded state when we talk about this idea of truth. In fact, our society has come to a place where this idea of truth, let alone the pursuit of truth, has been abandoned. Today, we believe and we teach that there is no such thing as truth and that the pursuit of truth is a wasteless pursuit. And it, it reflects in our society. Our moral fabric has decayed. It's literally become reverted back to like the time of the judges in Scripture. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. There is nothing to tell us what's right, what's wrong, what's true, and what's not. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Winston Churchill. I think Susan may be in the class. Winston Churchill is one of her favorites. He put it this way, Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. He's right. Sometimes the truth is so blatantly in front of people, and yet they choose to just deflect and move on as though they never heard it. We hold as Christians that truth is knowable on every level. Um, truth can be, can be uh, applied to every aspect of life, whether it's scientific truth, whether it's philosophical truth, whether it's moral truth, whether it's religious truth, whatever it's dealing with, we believe truth is knowable and that truth is absolutely relevant to today. I want to define first what we're talking about when we talk about truth so that we can move into our passage um, a common definition of truth, which is, which is not a good definition, is that truth is what makes sense to people. The problem with this, this coherence view of truth, is that lies can often make sense, right? And they can be made in such a way where they're logically uh, connected, but by their very definition, they're false. So coherence is not the definition of truth. Truth will make sense, but it's not the definition of truth. Neither is truth that which works, which is where really our society is today. There's no absolute truth. That's, that's too abstract. Truth is whatever works for the individual or for society. Once again, the problem with that is, is that lies work, but by their very definition, they're false. So when we talk about truth, and it's important because even Pilate recorded in the Gospel of John asked Jesus, what is truth? There's much confusion as to what truth is. And so if we don't have a good definition of what truth is, we may not even be talking about the same thing. The definition of truth is this. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And that's on every aspect of reality. Now, according to Scripture, God has left us two great testaments to what truth is. The book of creation and the book of Revelation. Okay, I want to deal very quickly with with 
general revelation, creation, because God has truly revealed himself in and through creation. Though it doesn't tell us everything about the heavens, what it does tell us is true. In Psalm 19, David wrote this, beginning verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In Psalm 104, 24, David said this, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Psalm 19 said, in knowledge have you made them, right? When we would expect from what the Bible says, when we look out in creation, we would find knowledgeable things. We would, we would find wise things. And indeed, that's what we just find. I love the example of DNA. When we discovered what DNA was, we discovered, you know what? There's information in DNA. That is not a product of matter. That's a product of mind. And it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly specific. It's incredibly wise and knowledgeable, just like the scripture said it would be. And you can give literally thousands of examples of wisdom that we find in creation. Day to day, this is being revealed. However, knowing truth from creation, we can come to conclusions about God. Turn with me, keep your finger in John chapter 8. In Romans chapter 1, there's true knowledge about God that can be learned from creation. In verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." Very often you hear skeptics or atheists say this, well, if God is the creator of the world, where is he? Why doesn't he just show up and show himself? Show himself. And I say this, God is seen by its effects, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't tell an architect or a builder who builds a building, well, where are you? What you're asking that builder to do is implant himself in a wall so that when you walk in, he's there waving at you. Here I am. You don't see the creator of something in the object he creates. You see the effect. And that's what we see in creation. You see the effect of God's power. You see the effect of God's wisdom. You see the effect of his divine and invisible attributes in creation. But this knowledge in general revelation, while it's enough to condemn people, it's never enough to save people. Because what we don't learn from creation is man's condition. What we don't learn from creation is what God has done about that condition, his plan in saving us. That took special revelation from God, which we find in his word, which is the second great testament of truth that God has given us. God's word. Here's some passages real quick about God's word, and then we're also going to talk about Jesus as being the revelation of God. But Psalm 86, 11 says this, Teach me your way that I might walk in your truth. 
Psalm 119, 143. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Psalm 119, 151. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Jesus prayed in the Gospel of John 17, verse 17, saying this, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And then Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 actually calls the gospel, one of the titles he uses for the gospel is the word of truth. And there's many more verses that can be cited testifying this is true. But Jesus also is part of God's revelation to man. In fact, Paul says very quickly in Ephesians 4.21, truth is in Jesus. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the revelation of truth. In fact, one of my favorite passages, Revelation 3.7, in the church to Philadelphia, as Jesus identified himself in many characteristics to the various churches, how he chose to identify himself to that church was as the true one. Now, in the New Testament, there's two different words used for this idea of truth. The word here used in Revelation is also used heavily by John in his writings, whether it's his gospel, whether it's the book of Revelation, or whether it's his epistles. And the word used here in Revelation, I want to talk about a little bit. Literally, you could translate that word as the real one or the genuine one. And I want to define this for you because this is a powerful concept of truth, an aspect of truth when we're dealing with this. It means real or genuine, not merely in the sense of, of contrasting to what's false, right? This is real, that's false. That's not the idea of this word, okay? It signifies that which is true, real, or genuine in contrast to that which is only partially or insubordinately true. Let me give you some examples. In John six thirty two, Jesus says this to the Jews. He says, Moses gave you bread, the manna from heaven, and then he says this, the Father gives you true bread from heaven. You see the contrast, right? Yes, Moses gave you a type of bread. It was a type of the fulfillment is me. I'm the real bread from heaven. In John chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus or John writes this, the true light came into the world. In the Old Testament, God said of the nation of Israel, I've given you as a light unto the Gentiles. There's the contrast. Israel was to be a light to the Gentile world. They forfeited that. And Jesus comes and says, I am the real, the fulfillment, the perfect light that comes into heaven. One of our favorite passages that we've been talking a lot about in our men's group is this idea of abiding in Christ in John 15. And it's been driving a lot of excellent conversation. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 80, verse 8, God says, I've given Israel, I've made Israel a choice vine. Isaiah 5 picks up on that same idea. I planted Israel as a choice vineyard. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, right? Picking up on this idea. What's Jesus doing over and over and over? There's these types of, in the Old Testament, light, bread, the vine, and you could add more. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the true this, that. I'm the perfect, I'm the fulfillment of those things. And so in Revelation, when God, when Jesus says, I am the real one, what he's saying is this, I 
correspond to what's true. I correspond to the way things really are. Going back to our definition of truth. If we had, if we didn't have that kind of knowledge, and if God had not revealed that to us, there would be conditions that we'd be living in that we could never escape from, that we could never get out of. Unless God had come in that kind of revelation to reveal the fullness of truth to us, we would still be dead in our sin, according to John chapter 8. So I wanted this morning, I want to focus on John's writings. I broke down why, why this is so important, this concept of truth. Because truth um, seems to be a major theme for the Apostle John. I want to give you some... Some examples, okay, and, and some comparisons. John opens his gospel in, in verse 14 of chapter 1 saying this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17 he says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John uses both the Greek words for truth. This idea of the, the substantive kind of truth. Jesus is the perfect. And then the idea of truth that we're familiar with. This is right. This is wrong. This is true. This is not. The compare and contrast type of truth. But for, for comparison's sake, listen to this. The word truth in the four Gospels. Matthew uses the word truth three times and he uses the word true one time. The longest of all the Gospels. He uses the word truth three times, the word true one time. Mark uses the word truth three times and the word true one time. Luke uses it a little bit more. He uses the word truth five times and the word true one time. When we get to John's gospel, it's quite different. John uses the word truth 27 times and the word true 20 times. In his epistles and in the book of Revelation, it's even more. 16 times the word true is used in his epistles in Revelation. And 20 times the word truth is used in his epistles alone. Truth is a major concept for the Apostle John. And when you look at the structure of his gospel, truth is all the, all the way through it. It, it. it lets us know what is John after? What is he pointing us to? Truth is sprinkled throughout his whole gospel, but, but in, in 22 chapters, we get to chapter 8, and there seems to be a concentration of John in one account of this idea of truth. It's as though John is, is saying, look, this is so important, I'm bringing us here to look at this. In that chapter alone, chapter 8, the word true and truth is used 12 times times the highest concentration of this idea in one single chapter in the whole bible you think that gives us a perspective of what john's after absolutely he wants us to know what truth is and is found in the person of christ so what i want to spend the rest of our time on because john chapter 8 is a very long chapter I want to highlight really what this chapter is doing for us, okay? Because what it comes down to, John chapter 8 is a very long and quite intense conversation that Jesus is having with these Jews. 
And it comes down to two perspectives. Jesus is asserting to the Jews who they are, and he's asserting who he is. The Jews are saying, who you say we are is not who we are, and who you say you are is not who you are. So it's a battle of perspectives. Jesus is asserting these things as true, and the Jews are saying, no, they're not. And that's really what it comes down to. But why is it important? Because if you get it wrong, you're either free if you get it right, or you're still enslaved if you don't. Battle of perspective on who we are and who Jesus is literally has life and death consequences. That's why it's important. That's why truth is of incomparable value as a gift. And unless Jesus had revealed these things as true, we would still be in darkness. We'd still be in darkness. So let's look at this. And I'm going to move quickly. I'm going to, I'm not going to read these passages, but I'm going to say the verse and say what the truth or the assertion is. Okay. So the first thing we're going to consider is what perspective Jesus said of himself. Who is Jesus? Who is he asserting himself to be in this John chapter eight? We're going to begin in verse 12. In verse 12, Jesus said of himself two different things. First, he said, I'm the light of the world. And then he says this, I'm also the light of life. He's the light of the world and he's the light of life. Down in verse 14 and verse 16, Jesus speaks true testimony and gives true judgment concerning things. Now, this is a sticky issue, right? In our pluralistic and relativistic society today, everyone's entitled to their opinion and every opinion is counted as equally true. But Jesus says, no, it's not. Not every opinion about any issue is true, but I'm telling you this. What I'm telling you is true. I speak true testimony and I speak true judgment. In verse 14, let's read it. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. In verse 16, he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. How invaluable in this, this confusing society we live in when there's a cacophony of voices saying, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, that we can come to one who says, you know what, I've come from the Father, and I speak truly of Him, and I give accurate judgment concerning it. Unless we had someone like that outside of the system, coming into the system, so to speak, we would be in a mess. We'd be in a battle of ideas with no way to say this is true, this is false. Jesus cuts through all of that and says, listen to me. In verse 23, Jesus says, I've come from above. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. So Jesus is from above. He's heavenly in his origin. In number five, Jesus declares true words from God. Now, this is something so important because it's most often said in verse 26, 28, 38, 40, and 45. He all he says the same things. Let's just read one of those examples in verse 26. Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He emphasizes this fact over and over in this chapter. I declare to you true 
words. Jesus in verse 29 says he always does what pleases God. Verse 31 and 32 we read, he came to set the captives free. Those who are enslaved in sin, he's come to set free. In verse 36 he says essentially the same thing. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He says he has authority and power over death in verse 51. He says, truly, truly in that verse, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. His word, he says, is true. And if you keep it, you will never see death. He goes on still. He glory, he's glorified by the Father in verse 54. He knows the Father in verse 55. And he keeps God's word, his true word, in verse 55. And then last of all, in verse 58, Jesus sets the hammer down and he says, I am the great I am. He takes this title of deity for himself. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He says, I'm God. And they pick up stones to stone him, thinking he's blaspheming. He makes an undeniable claim to being equal with the Father, taking that Old Testament title that God used to reveal himself to Moses. Jesus says, that's me. So that's what Jesus testifies about himself just in this chapter. Pretty substantive. What, is it, what does he say about us in this chapter? Well, it's not so good. In, in fact, it's quite alarming. It's quite confrontational if it's true. So Jesus teaches us true things about ourselves. Why this is so important before we go through this list if we're honest with ourselves and our pride, we would never say these things about ourselves. I'm so thankful that Jesus was willing to tell me the truth about who I really am. Because in my pride and in my self-deception, I would never incriminate myself in this way. Yet Jesus does, and there's a good reason we're going to get to after we look at it. So what does Jesus say about us? What does he say is true about us? First... He says we are deceived and ignorant of the Father. He says this three different times in verse 14, in verse 19, and verse 55. Let's just read it in verse 14, though. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I've come from or where I'm going. They're ignorant. He goes on in verse 55 to say, you don't know the Father. I do. Now remember, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews who are very religious and believe they were absolutely the father's children. And he tells them point blank, you don't know who he is. You've missed the boat. Very incriminating. He goes on though, he says, we are carnal and we're of this world. Verse 23, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. In verse 34, he says, we are sinners. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, which is the next point. Not only are we sinners, we're enslaved to the sin we commit. That's even worse. It's not just that I've committed sin. It's I can't escape from committing sin. It speaks to the condition, not just the action. Now, that paints a picture of mankind as very troubling. If we are not just sinners by action, but sinners by nature, 
We are in desperate need of help. We can't free ourselves from slavery to it. He gets a little more deep, though. In verse 44, he identifies next that we are literally under the headship of Satan. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. However, we may have convinced ourselves that we're righteous and we're doing the will of God. Jesus says, actually, just the opposite. Your desire is to do his will. Because you don't know God and you don't know me. If you knew God, you would know who I am. The fact that you want to kill me, which is the next thing he says, shows you're not of him. Verse 28, verse 40, and verse 44, Jesus identifies you are murderers at heart. In fact, in verse 28, is actually a, a foretelling of what they're going to do to him. Jesus said to them in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. What's he just tell them? He tells them, you're going to crucify me. And then he goes on in the next couple verses I referenced, your heart's desire right now is to murder me because I'm telling you true things. So we're murderers at heart. Not only that, verse 43 says we can't, we can't even bear to hear the truth. If you read it with me, verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 55, Jesus says, not only this, we are liars. Why? Because we are of Satan, our father. And he says in verse 55, you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And then he says this, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The most important thing, though, is what I said at the beginning, verse 24. Unless we receive this testimony, not only about who Jesus is, but about who we really are, there's existential consequences. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. A lot is said in this chapter. But as I've said, the way you look at this chapter is it's a battle of perspectives. And really what Jesus is doing is he's battling for them, even though they think he's battling against them. What he's trying to get the Jews to see is unless you see the truth of these things, you are dead. There's no hope for you. You have to come and have your thinking shifted to see truth rightly. But he attaches a promise to that. When your thinking changes about who I am and about who you are, you're set free. There's freedom there. That's why this kind of truth in particular that we're talking about, we're not talking about philosophical truth. We're not talking about moral truth. We're not talking about mathematical or any kind of truth. We're talking about truth that is eternally relevant to the soul of people. And unless this truth had been revealed to us by the Father, we would still be dead in our sins. So everything Jesus said about himself, the Jews rejected as false. Everything Jesus said about the Jews, the Jews rejected as false. Conversely, everything Jesus said about himself was true. And everything Jesus said about the Jews was also true. So these realities outlined in this chapter lay out truth that we would never have arrived at. Before we came to faith, in other words, we were deceived about reality. 
about the spiritual reality of where we were at. That's why Jesus identified himself as the real, the, the, the reality of these things. He is the perfect fulfillment of things that we were ignorant about. So if we were wrong on these points, we missed the boat entirely. Jesus made it clear, unless you believe in me, you're dead in your sins. But here's how we're going to wrap this up, because it doesn't end on a sour note for those who believe. Believing in Jesus requires us to believe what he says about ourselves and about him. And this is where true freedom from knowing the truth is given. One of the hardest things for people in in wrestling and coming to faith in the Lord is to accept this testimony about themselves because they want desperately in their heart to believe that they're good. They want desperately in their heart to believe, you know, I can do it. I can pull up my boots and get it done. And I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to be good enough to stand before the Father. And there's this battle that rages in our hearts when we're dealing with this truth claim where if we never come to the place of saying, you know what? I cannot do it. I am never good enough. I will never be good enough. Not only that, I'm not even close to a definition of of good. I've missed the boat. But the promise is this. When we come in our heart and we believe what Jesus has said, as indicting as it is to us, that's when we find freedom from those consequences. And what a powerful experience that is for people who've lived either a very self-righteous life or a very sinful life. Both have the same need. You've got to believe what Jesus says about who you are and what your need is. I listed several things from this passage as well as others in in the New Testament of what exactly it is that we are set free from. Jesus says, when you believe in him, you will know the truth and you will you will be free, okay? First of all, from this passage, we know we are set free from the bondage of what's false. Verse 31 and 32 makes that clear. We will come to know the truth, having believed at one time lies. So we're, we're set free from the bondage of falsehood. Again, I'm not talking about, hey man, I... I I got my calculus problem wrong. I'm not talking about that falsehood. The falsehood here is if you get it wrong, there's no hope. That falsehood we can have assurance of. I heard one pastor say one time, you know, the world seeks answers to all the immediate questions and they ignore the ultimate ones. What God does is he answers all the ultimate questions and sometimes doesn't answer the immediate ones. I love that. There's many things I don't understand that are immediately pressing. I don't, I don't get it. But you know what I can have assurance of, what I can have true knowledge of? The ultimate issues regarding my soul. Every one of them has been settled in the courts of heaven. So he sets us free from the bondage of falsehood. He sets us free from the bondage of Satan. I can remember the first time I read in John's epistle, chapter 5, verse 19, John says that the evil one has sway over the whole world. I was shocked when I read that. I was like, my goodness. Because I was still under this kind of impression that there's bad people and there's good people. And I was still one of those good people. Satan doesn't have sway over me. Well, John says he did. And the life I lived reflected that. 
He did have sway over me. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says it this way, um, that Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He's blinded their minds. They literally cannot see. We were talking about this, this concept. I can't remember where now, but just recently how, you know, we expect people who haven't come to faith yet to understand these things. It seems so simple to us. But the reality is they can't see it. They're blind. As basic as these truths might be to a seasoned Christian, they're not basic to people who don't know the Lord because there's a deception over their eyes. And the Lord has to remove that. How does he remove it? When they begin to believe his testimony. When I begin to believe what God has said about me, that literally I'm doing the will of Satan. If that's true, that's alarming. But he's come to set me free from it. The third thing I wrote down that we're set free from is actually out of Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before we come to faith, we are already under condemnation, Jesus said in John 3. When we come to faith, we're set free from that. We're not under wrath. We are under grace. Why? Because Jesus has already paid that penalty, being condemned for us. There's nothing left to be paid, which leads to the fourth thing identified in the Gospel of John. We're set free from judgment. Turn over to chapter 3, if you will. Of John's gospel, John three eighteen, Jesus says that very thing. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Okay, there's no judgment. Go over to chapter five, verse twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in to judgment, but is passed from death to life. True words. It's not by works. It's not by being good enough. It's by believing the word of Christ. That's salvation. You believe it and Jesus says, you have life. You've been set free. We've been set free from spiritual ignorance And that's essentially what John said back in chapter 8. Right? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That metaphor, walking in darkness, is a metaphor for walking in ignorance. We don't know the truth. We can't see the truth. It's like walking in the dark. That's why Jesus used the metaphor, I am the light. Walk in the light. Walk in truth. When we come to faith... We walk in light. We see reality. We are set free from spiritual ignorance. As we just said, we are also set free from spiritual death. We read that in John 5. But in verse 51 of chapter 8, he says the same thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And last of all, true freedom and what we are freed from is sin and its power over us. In verse 34 of John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. He who commits sin is a slave to it. You can't change that condition. 
But if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You are set free from sin. Paul makes the same argument in Romans chapter 6. So what's the application in wrapping this up? The truth that Jesus reveals to us and why truth is such a magnificent gift is because it's truth that we would have never figured out ourselves. In fact, we deny it. We battle against it. But they're true words. I can remember my struggle in coming to faith in Christ, how things seemed so confusing. It was so daunting. I was in the dark. And as hard as I would try to figure things out, as hard as I would try to figure out myself and why I kept doing certain things, I couldn't do it. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're there. This is part of why knowing truth is so important. You are set free from all these things. So the truth Jesus revealed to us, both about ourself and about who he is, was a gift meant to liberate sinners. In fact, Luke 19 says this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But I want to read in ending a passage out of Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 4. This ministry of Jesus in proclaiming liberty, proclaiming freedom through proclaiming truth is so awesome. It is why he came. In Luke 4, the context is this. Jesus is coming to his hometown of Nazareth. They knew him as a boy. They knew him growing up as a carpenter's son and a carpenter himself. But he comes back in his ministry in the fullness of the Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Luke 4, says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Can you imagine listening to Jesus read that about himself? That would send chills up your spine knowing he's talking about himself. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. I love that. He reads it, rolls it back up, which would have taken a little time, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. He doesn't expound. He simply reads the word of God, and everyone's looking at him, it says. And then finally he breaks the silence, and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Powerful words. What did Jesus just say? I've come to set you free. I'm proclaiming liberty. There's freedom in the truth of that proclamation. And that is why Jesus came. That's why we as a church celebrate the testimony of Christ to us as truth. Because truth brings spiritual freedom when we're spiritually lost. What are we to do with this church? What are we to do with this gospel? What are we to do with this truth that's been entrusted? Well, Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. You are to raise this up. You are to hold it firmly with conviction 
We are to speak it and teach it to others, just as Jesus proclaimed it to others. And according to 2 Timothy 2, we are to rightly divide the word of truth. We're to know it, understand it, proclaim it, pass it on. That's truth. That's good truth.